hear now the word of God from Mark. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all of these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to the disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or mother or father or sisters or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with the persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Altogether, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Would you remain standing, please, as we uh, commit this time to the Lord? Heavenly Father, uh, we worship you, we adore you, we thank you for this time in your word. Um, it's a hard word. Um, it's a familiar one. I pray, Lord, that you would... Speak to us in a new way, a fresh way, that we would see you and that we'd love you. Would we just confess we have other competing loves? But this morning, by your spirit, soften us uh, that our hearts would be fertile ground. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. You know, summertime, it feels like... Um, a lot of the regular attenders are, you know, recreating or visiting family, and we have lots of visitors. Um, so if I have not ever met you, my name's Ronnie, and I'm the pastor here. It's a real pleasure to meet you. You know, I tell a lot of autobiographical stories, so many of uh, Denver Press knows a little bit about my story. You know, I grew up in a very financially humble house, no boat, no lake house. But one summer, my friend invited me to their home that was on Lake Conroe to enjoy a week on the water. And they had a boat. And it turns out that tubing behind a boat is an absolute blast. Now, at the time of this story, I was probably, I don't know, 80 or 90 pounds and uh, the goal was to get going as fast as you can, and then the boat turns, and it whips you over the wake, right, until you get thrown off, right? I mean, that's like the deal. 
So one time we're going so fast that it threw me off and I hydroplaned on the water until my head hit it. And, uh, you know, at a certain speed, the surface tension of water is similar to that of a brick wall. And, uh, and I hit it hard. But I just kind of shook it off, you know, kind of got back up on the tomb and said, again. So there I am, moving fast again. But now I'm starting to feel nauseous. Probably because I had a concussion, but this is the 80s and we didn't think about it, all right? So I give, you know, I'm feeling a little bit sick, so I give the signal to the boat driver, like, let's wrap it up. Let's wrap it up. Now listen, I didn't grow up on the lake. I don't know hand signals to boat people, right? This does not mean stop. Apparently the signal I gave was, let's do it again. Let's go faster. So instead of stopping, they went faster. What a profound misunderstanding. I misunderstood the signal of, what, of, of how to stop a boat, and it caused a lot of sickness. Why do I share this story? We're going to study a very famous passage, the one we just heard, about a young man who misunderstood the signals. He misunderstood the markers for how to become profoundly happy, like a soul happiness. And it's going to cause him to get sick, soul sick, really sad. You and I have been hardwired to seek out this soul happiness, but we misunderstand much about what that means or how to get it. This is a story that you know. This is a story that you have heard before, and I'm going to make all the conclusions that you uh, could probably already predict, but I'm going to ask you to listen with faith. This morning, as we study this passage, we're going to ask, why don't we have the soul happiness that we're looking for? And as we study this passage, we're going to see four misunderstandings. So note takers, here are your four points. I'll try to keep it shorter, even though there's more points. But we, first, we misunderstand ourselves. We misunderstand God. We misunderstand our wealth. And we misunderstand our works. So ourselves, God, wealth, and works. Let's begin with how we misunderstand ourselves. So our passage this morning begins verse 17. And the text tells us that a man ran up knelt before Jesus and said, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What a question, right? Isn't that the question, right? This man believes that when you die, you don't die. Not forever anyway. That's what he believes. That's why he's asking the question. Now, this story is told in all the other synoptic gospels, and so we know a little bit more about this man. He is a rich young ruler, right? Now, in the ancient Near East, rulers are usually older, but this one's young, which means he's likely not a religious leader. He's a civic leader. Now, in that world, nine of ten people lived below the poverty line, right? There is no middle class. Wealth was based on ownership of land. You either owned land or more likely, you just worked on the land. So this man, this young, young rich, rich young ruler, is an owner. He is an urban elite. Young, 
influential leader. And he has influence in the world of politics. Men wanted to be him, and young ladies wanted to marry him. Now, often in the Gospels, when you see leaders entering into a conversation with Jesus, they're usually trying to trick him, right? Often they're trying to, trying to get him to commit blasphemy so they can arrest him. Not here. Not this guy. This guy is earnest. He is sincere. And wealthy men don't run. It's dishonorable. They have these robes. They have to pick up their robes. You'd see their legs to run. Not, they would never do that. This guy runs. He sees Jesus and he runs to him. And he kneels. And this young ruler kneels before a peasant, itinerant preacher. Why? Because he is desperate to fill his empty heart. He kneels because he wants something bad. He's restlessly searching. How can I find eternal life? How can I find eternal soul happiness? But this is where the misunderstanding begins. This man assumed something about himself and he was wrong. That he can find it. The eternal life, soul happiness. He assumes, I can find it. Where can I find this thing? There, that, that it's something in him that can achieve it. This man looks at goodness from the perspective of human resources and accomplishment. And he misunderstood what it, what it took to be accepted, good, or worthy. So Jesus determines to expose this man's misunderstanding of himself. He looks past this man's words and actions, and he looks into his heart. He takes this, like, heart x-ray machine, and, and, he, and Jesus lists then, you know, five of the ten commandments, right? He says, verse 19, he goes, you know the commandments. Don't murder, commit adultery, steal, bear false witness, don't defraud, honor your father and mother. And to this, this guy responds, verse 20, Teacher, I've kept all of these from my youth. Now listen, there's no doubt, or there's no reason to doubt this man's sincerity. He's likely a nice guy, morally upright. But he tragically misunderstood himself. When it comes to goodness, he has a false sense of security. He feels worthy of God's kingdom. He feels like he has what it takes to be accepted by God because of his worthiness, right? It's all about him. It's his resume. It's his goodness. This man's salvation paradigm assumes that we can have what it takes all on our own. It, it's a belief that we all get trapped in, right? Thinking that we are actually better than we are. And we misunderstand ourselves when we think that we have the power in and of ourselves to please God because of the things that we do or the things that we don't do. You know, later in the chapter, we're going to study this next week as we work through Mark. Jesus is going to describe himself as giving his life as a ransom for sinners. That's literally how Jesus is going to describe himself. That language is absolutely unintelligible to a person who can save themselves. Like, why do I need a ransom? Who needs to ransom me? That's unintelligible language. 
And you and I have to work against this misunderstanding all the time because everything in our experience reinforces the idea that we're good and self-sufficient. But Christians are people who preach to themselves the good news that we cannot fix ourselves. Now, don't, don't do this in desperation. Do it with gratitude. If you are your own savior, you'll get anxious about whether or not you've done enough. Are you good enough? You'll be judgy towards people who you think aren't living up to your standards. And the sole happiness that you're looking for will always elude you. But if you celebrate because you are a needy sinner who is securely in the hands of a merciful and kind God, then the anxiety will start to melt away and soul happiness will start to break through. Listen, the problem with this man is not his moral performance or his behavior. It's the worship of his heart. He overestimates himself. He misunderstands himself. And as a result, he sees Jesus as a teacher, but not a savior. And this leads us to our second point. We misunderstand ourselves, but we also misunderstand God. When this young ruler kneels before Jesus with this titanic question, like, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He begins his question by addressing Jesus as good teacher, right? Did you notice that in verse 18? And so Jesus responds to him exactly where his next misunderstanding lies. Jesus responds, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. All right, everyone focus on me for just a second, all right? I want you to believe those sort of red-letter words of Jesus, and I want you to believe them with your whole heart. No one is good except God alone. Jesus' words. Listen, no one is good except God alone. All Christian anthropology comes from Jesus. My experience as a pastor is that this doctrine, sometimes called like total depravity, is the hardest to accept. It is hard to believe that Jesus is right, that no one is good except God alone. We have this incessant need to believe and to tell ourselves that we are intrinsically good, that our babies are good, that our morally upright neighbors are good. Now listen, because I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying. It is true that we all have dignity. And as such, we owe all image bearers honor and dignity. But dignity, which is worthy of love and respect, is different than goodness. No one can stand in front of God and say, I am good. Why? Jesus tells us no one is good except God alone. Red letters here. Now, saying that we are not good does not mean that we are as bad as we could be. All right, again, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Don't hear what I'm not saying. Humans are capable of doing things that are meaningfully, that meaningfully honor God. Your good works, they matter. But doing good works does not make you ontologically good. We are not. So let, let that keep us humble 
and let that keep us radically dependent on a kind, good God, you see. Now, by responding to this man with the question, why do you call me good? Jesus is not denying that he is God or good. He knows this quite well. Jesus asks, because he knows that this man doesn't believe it about him, about Jesus. This young ruler misunderstands God who is standing in front of him. He thinks that Jesus is a good teacher, a great leader, a great rabbi, a good miracle worker and do-gooder. Jesus is not less than those things, but it is not proper for this man to acknowledge Jesus as a great teacher until he is ready to acknowledge him as the incarnate God. Y'all following me? The whole New Testament is committed to convincing us of this one thing, that Jesus is not just a wise and noble teacher. He is the Son of God, God incarnate. Jesus saves you, not by his wise teachings, but by his own blood and his substitutionary death. Gurus and teachers cannot die for you because no one is good except God alone. A good God died for you and rose again on the third day. And nothing else matters until you get this right. Our soul happiness is inextricably tied to clearly understanding Jesus, our God and King, this young ruler misunderstood God. Now, in misunderstanding God, there's a real barrier to his soul happiness because it also led him to misunderstand wealth. And this is our third point. See, after Jesus went through the commandments of Moses, at least five of them, look at, he says, he says uh, the guy responds to Jesus and says, I've kept them all from my youth. And then what comes next is really remarkable. Look at verse 21. And Jesus, look at that, <laughs> looking at him, loved him, and said to him, you lack one thing. Now, that verb, looking, to look, in the Greek, is this word that describes this deep searching. Jesus deeply searched this man's heart and loved him. Every, listen, everyone knows that Jesus is loving, but explicit statements like this are extremely rare in the Gospels. Jesus searching him, loved him. And what follows, y'all, are the words of unadulterated love. Jesus says, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And then come follow me. Now listen to these painful words, verse 22. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. The problem with this man was not his moral performance or behavior. It's the worship of his heart. He is ruled by something other than Jesus. This man had an authority in his life that was above Jesus, and it was his money. It was his possessions. 
And here's, you guys, here's what complicates this text because I know it's familiar. Wealth in this context is a mark of pleasure and blessing from God. Like money is a sign of God's pleasure, not the thing that prevented you access from him. So like the common sense of the time in the culture in which this is written is this. The richer you are, the more blessed, the more godly you are. And Jesus is turning this upside down. The wealthier you are, the harder it is for you to make spiritual progress. Now follow me carefully. The Bible says that all gifts are from God, including your wealth. Our wealth and resources are good things that God has given us. We should not be skeptical or demonize wealth. It just means that we should practice stewardship with gratitude. All things are blessings, and the source of those good things are God, who is the giver. Here's the problem, though. We misunderstand wealth. Wealth of riches cannot give you the sole happiness that we're looking for. In fact, wealth can become dangerous. Wealth can block true soul happiness if you misunderstand it. There's nothing evil with wealth, but it is dangerous. Money distracts us. The young ruler could not see clearly. Right? He couldn't see what Christ was offering him. Listen, making money takes a lot of attention and time. Starting a business, working all day, worrying all night. Spending money takes a lot of attention and time. Shopping for clothes, shopping for houses, shopping for cars, shopping and planning out an exotic vacation. Making money, losing money, spending money, investing money, borrowing money, it takes a lot of attention and time. It consumes you until you don't see clearly because your gaze, 20 hours of the day, are set on money. And so Jesus becomes blurry. Not only does money distract us, but it disillusions us. Money begins to shape our identity and where we find our worth. If you have it, it tells you that you made it. Or if, it ha if you have it, if you come from a family like mine, then it tells you that you, all the sacrifices that your parents made are worth it because you made it. Right? And it makes us think that we're secure. It represents power. Like if you need something, you have the money to secure it. And when we look to money to give us those things, it disillusions us because we come to believe that we have those things because we have financial resources. But listen, you guys, your health, thus your ability to make money, can all be taken away. There's not enough money in the world that can fix that problem. And money gives us bigger problems. Our children become entitled. These are our neighbors or our children. We become estranged from our children. Children who, if they didn't have enough money to ever have a TV, to ever have a smartphone, to ever have a car, they would have been happier and more grateful. But money disillusions us. 
Money tends to displace God in the lives of wealthy people. I'm going to say that again. Money tends to displace God in the lives of wealthy people. We misunderstand our wealth, and it becomes a barrier to soul happiness, the soul happiness that we're looking for. One writer says it like this. He says, covetousness is like a virus that takes residence in the soul and begins to slowly work its destruction. The love of acquisition and appetite for self-gratification will deaden the instinct for self-sacrifice. It deadens the impulse towards self-sacrifice. Jesus loves this man, and he wants to loosen his death grip on his stuff. And so Jesus gives him an antidote, right? An antidote to his sickness. Look at verse 21. Jesus, sell all that you have. Give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. Is Jesus teaching their salvation by works now? No. So why does he ask this? To expose the heart. This man was proud. He relied on his works. And the man who could follow all those other commandments, the five, could not follow this one. It was one commandment too far. As a side note, because Jesus says, sell, give to the poor, caring for the poor, you guys, is always so close to Jesus' heart. Jesus is serious about giving to those in need. 2,000 verses in the Bible are, commit, are described caring or care for the poor. God shows compassion to the poor through the generosity of us, of his people. This is how come, like an entire like office, an entire branch of our church, which is called the deacon board or the diaconate, like is committed to allocating our resources to a poor. Like literally, we have like a whole army of people that, that, that mostly do one thing. I mean, they do other things, but mostly what they're doing is thinking about how to care for the poor on our behalf. It's amazing. But remember, the problem for this young man is not his performance. It's not even his money. The problem was his worship. And Jesus is asking him to worship with his wealth. To worship with his wealth. When we care for the poor, we are worshiping Jesus with our wealth. Tragically, the young ruler, he couldn't give it up because he had a death grip on it. He misunderstood wealth. He thought it would give him what he was looking for. But instead of soul happiness, he went away in the same way that he arrived, with a soul sickness. Sad. He never found what he was looking for. Eternal soul happiness is elusive because we misunderstand ourselves, we misunderstand God, and we misunderstand our wealth. But let me show you one more misunderstanding that this story exposes, and it's we misunderstand our works. This young ruler looked at, you know, the five of the Ten Commandments and said, I have kept these since my youth. 
And again, you guys, like, he's probably being sincere. His great wealth even validated that claim that he has kept them, at least in the eyes of his culture. They believe that, this, that his wealth is a sign that it's evidence of God's blessing upon him. And this man walks away from Jesus. He does not take the deal. He stays with the matchbox car instead of taking the real Lamborghini because he misunderstands everything. And so this prompts Jesus to turn to his disciples. And he says, verse 23, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And then again, verse 24, children, how difficult is it to enter the kingdom of God? Verse 25, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So like the largest known mammal in the entire region, going through the eye of a needle is what? It's impossible, right? I mean, you know, some commentators will say that the eye of the needle is, the, is actually a name for the second gate that's right inside of the city gates where if a, a visitor was coming, he'd have to stop there, leave his beast, and only he could pass through like the, the camel has to say. But either way, you get the point, right? Entry into the kingdom of God is impossible. Now listen, verse 26 says that the disciples were exceedingly, exceedingly astonished. And they ask, who can be saved? Like if this rich man, who because of his wealth they deduced was a good man with incredible blessing from God, if even that amazing guy couldn't get in, what chance do the poor have? Poor men like the disciples. Unlike the rich man, they don't even have a lot of wealth to be able to give away. How can they get in? Verse 27, with man it's impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. In other words, it is not about you. It's not about you. But Peter, just like the rich man, had the same misunderstanding of works. He says, verse 28, we have left everything and followed you. And what he's saying there is this. We have left everything, which is not much in comparison to the rich man. How do I know then? If I can't even give away as much as him, how do I know if I have done enough works? I'm really nervous, Jesus. I don't know that I can say that I followed all the commandments like this guy has. And even if I give away everything, I don't even have a fraction of the blessing this rich man has. You see what Peter's doing? He's committing the same mistake. It's still about works. The rich man made it about works when he said that he kept the commandments. And Peter made it about works when he says that he sacrificed everything to follow Jesus. It's not about the works. We must not misunderstand what works are for. Your works do not give you standing or status. Before God, you can't do enough works. Even if you take a vow of poverty, with man, soul happiness is impossible. It is impossible, but not with God. 
God is the protagonist in your story. You've got to see this. It's not just our work. We are saved by works, just not your works. You're saved by God's works. Don't misunderstand works like the disciples did or the way this young ruler did. In this life, you will not make as much money or give away as much money as you could. Why? Because money is not the point of your life. That's not even your goal. And therefore, you'll have less to give away. You will give, and the amount that you're called to give will hurt. It will hurt. If your giving doesn't hurt a little bit, maybe we're not reading deeply enough. But Jesus steps into that hurt and says, verse 29, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother and father or children or lands for my sake or for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters, mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Even though you will give it away enough to hurt, you will get more both in this life, in this time, and in the life to come. All right, really? Does that mean that we're going to have wealth in this life? Because most of the disciples died poor, as did our Savior. What he's talking about in this life is the community of Christ. And this is true whether you live like it or not. When you are connected to the body of Christ, you have a hundredfold of what you have without us. The resources of love, support, perseverance, and yes, even financial resources exponentially multiply your own. Your lonely life has nothing on the body of Christ. Christians are people who are radically for the other and for each other. We are so rich in all the ways that actually matter. In this life, we get a taste of that infinite soul happiness that we will have with the Lord for eternity. And so let me quickly summarize and then just conclude. I don't want any of us to misunderstand any of the signals that show us the way of true soul happiness. If we misunderstand ourselves, if we misunderstand God, wealth, or works, then instead of soul happiness, we will get nausea. So here's the signal. That means I'm wrapping up. I'll interpret it for you. Let me finish with a story that was penned by Soren Kierkegaard, 19th century philosopher. This is, listen to the story carefully. Suppose there was a king who loved a humble maiden. The king was like no other king. Every statesman trembled before his power. No one dared breathe a word against him, for he had strength to crush all opponents. And yet this mighty king was melted by love for a humble maiden. How could he declare his love for her? In an odd sort of way, his very kingliness tied his hands. If he brought her to the palace and crowned her head with jewels and clothed her body in royal robes, she would surely not resist, 
No one dared resist him. But would she love him? I mean, she would say she loved him, of course. But would she truly? Or would she live with him in fear, nursing a private grief for the life that she had left behind? Would she be happy at his side? And how could he know? If he rode to her forest cottage in his royal carriage with an armed escort waving bright banners, that too would overwhelm her. He didn't want a cringing subject. He wanted a lover, an equal. He wanted her to forget that he was a king and she a humble maiden and to let shared love cross over the gulf between them. For it is only in love that the unequal can be made equal, concluded Kierkegaard. The king convinced he could could not elevate the maiden without crushing her freedom, resolved to descend. He clothed himself as a beggar and approached her cottage incognito with a worn cloak fluttering loosely about him. It was no mere disguise, but a new identity that he took on. He renounced the throne to win her hand. Do you hear it? Jesus is the true, rich, young ruler. But he did really obey all the commandments. And even still, like he renounced all of his wealth. He did it. He, like, he came low. He put on a, a servant's clothes. Why? So that he could woo you. So that you would know that, that, that he loves you and that you love him. The true rich young ruler gave up everything to purchase you and to wed himself to you. So that you would know that his love is true. So that you would have a glimpse of true soul happiness. The true rich young ruler came low, renounced it all, did what this one would not do. Do you believe that? That's the gospel. And nothing else is going to make any sense until that melts your heart. Would you believe it with me? Let's believe it together. Amen.